six times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus intentionally sought to undermine the teaching of the Pharisees. Six times he offered a correction to what was the prevalent understanding of the law in his day. Six times Jesus said, you have heard it was said, but I tell you, pushing back not against the Old Testament scriptures, but the distortion of those scriptures. The pharisaical teaching of the day had distorted God's holy word and created an ethic that was not biblical. Six times Jesus pushes back against that unbiblical ethic so as to reassert and apply within a new covenant context a biblical ethic, one that honors God. If anyone were to ask you, what is the Christian ethic? What is the morality that you seek to live by? You could go just about anywhere in the Bible. I think you would do well to start here. In Matthew 5, beginning at verse 17, all the way through to the end of the chapter, perhaps this is the foundation of the Christian ethic. You could go to the epistles, certainly, and it might be that in the epistles you find a more highly delineated morality, but you have to understand the apostles were simply explaining and applying the ethic they had already received from Christ. You may find more in the epistles, but you most certainly will not find less than what is given here in Matthew chapter 5. And if there is one overarching imperative, one command that sits very much at the center of everything Jesus teaches, you could reasonably argue that it is the command to love your enemies. At the very heart of Jesus' teaching to his disciples on the way in which they ought to live is the command to love your enemies enemies. You don't simply love those who are kind to you. If you're going to be my disciple, I command you to love in an altogether different way, that is to love those who hate you and seek to bring about evil in your life. So what does it mean to be a Christian? First and foremost, it means that you've set your eyes upon Christ with faith, accepting him to be exactly who he said he was. To be a Christian, first and foremost, means you have looked at Christ and found in him the only possible means to be right with God. But it also means that thereafter you obey him. To be a Christian means you have cast yourself upon the Savior and your life is one of obedience to His commands. I stress that because so often today the teaching is that a Christian is simply one who confesses Christ for the forgiveness of sins with no understanding of responsibility coming thereafter. To claim Christ and all His benefits but with no regard for then how you live your life in light of your claimed salvation. 
The Bible knows no kind, no such kind of Christianity. To be a Christian is to find Christ eminently worthy. He is glorious above all other things in your life. And as you have received from him the gift of salvation, you then seek to obey him every day. And thus, we pay attention when he commands that we ought to love our enemies. Now, as with the previous five antitheses, we have to first ask the question, what exactly was the distortion? To get into Jesus' teaching here, we first need to consider what was the nature of the distortion that the Pharisees seemingly had been teaching. From there, to consider Christ's correction. And in this particular case, he goes on to give an incentive, a means by which we might obey. So that's where we're headed, looking at the distortion, the correction, and then the incentive by which we might be those who faithfully, steadfastly obey Christ, not least by loving our enemies. What was the distortion? You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. In previous weeks, if you've been tracking, you'll remember there are times when the the distortion leveraged by the fallacies is not altogether obvious because Christ quotes directly word for word from the Old Testament scriptures and it seems like perhaps he's pushing back against the word of God itself. In those particular cases, it can be difficult. You have to lean upon the cultural context and pay close attention to Jesus' argument to understand what were the Pharisees doing to distort the law. We don't have that problem this week. Because this week, when Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, we understand he is quoting only in part from the Old Testament Scriptures. Leviticus chapter 19, we read it just a few minutes ago. I wonder if you notice. Moses writes there the imperative, love your neighbor. What he does not say is hate your enemy. The distortion of the Pharisees is plainly obvious in this case simply because they have added to God's word. God's word does not say hate your enemy. It commands the Old Testament people of God to love your neighbor and it stops there and then resorts to the ground for obedience. I am the Lord. And seemingly, the prevalent teaching of the day was such that the Pharisees had added to God's word. They had made an inference, as incorrect as the inference was, teaching that as the word of God says, love your enemy, by implication, therefore, it says, love your neighbor, therefore, by implication, we are to hate our enemy. Incidentally, I think the reason that the law is given in that form in Leviticus is simply because the Old Testament people of God were defined geographically. They were a nation. They were situated in one nation with borders. 
Everyone around them was a neighbor. Their neighbor, understood, would have been a fellow Israelite. You could render that imperative simply as an exhortation to love everyone around you. That's why it's given in that form. There's no need to speak about your enemy. But the Pharisees had picked up that command, added to the word of God, and taught consistently the people of Christ's day, there is to be a hatred in your heart towards those that you count as enemies. They were teaching God's people to fail utterly in their mission. Throughout the Old Testament, God tells the people of Israel, you are to be a light to the nations. You are to allow the nations to stream toward you as they look in on your obedience and worship of me. They will find that compelling and they will want to know more about the God whom you serve. And as the Pharisees were teaching them to harbor enmity in their hearts towards their enemies, They were teaching them to fail utterly in their mission, to be a light to the nations. And so, there are, as we think about this, potential objections that arise. The scripture does not say, hate your enemy. But what about the commands that God gave to his people to enter into the land and to kill everyone that was there? The conquest. What about the imprecatory Psalms where we see Davidic kings leaning on the promises that God had given to them and praying through those promises, not least prayers of hatred towards God's enemies? Does that not give some kind of validation to the Pharisees' teaching? It's important to understand that neither of those examples, neither the conquest nor the imprecatory Psalms, forms an imperative for the New Testament believer to hate his enemy on an interpersonal level. You see the difference in the Old Testament, God commissioned a nation, a people whom he had raised up and formed to go into a land. And he said, anyone that doesn't flee, anyone that doesn't join themselves to you like Rahab did and like Ruth did, anyone that stands their ground and wants to fight, you are to destroy. That doesn't form an imperative for you this morning to harbor enmity in your heart at an interpersonal level towards anyone. In the same way, the imprecatory Psalms are written by those in the line of David. They're leaning upon the covenant promises given in 2 Samuel 7, which include God's guarantee to give the kings peace in the land. And so leaning on those promises, they simply pray through them. They rehearse that theology and say, God, I with you hate your enemies. Again, that does not form an imperative for you this morning to be a hater of one who works out evil in your life. What Jesus teaches us is fully compatible and in fact opens up the heart of the law as it was originally given. That we are to be those who love our neighbor and even love our enemies. So you see, notice the 
relationship now, the logical flow from last week's text into this week's text. Last week, we saw that Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil. As I phrased it, Jesus says we are not to be vengeful, self-justified distributors of justice. That is not our mandate. We're not permitted to behave in that way. And it may very well be that there are times in your life when the very best response to evil is to allow it to flourish for the sake of the gospel. It requires the utmost wisdom. We talked about that, but very simply stated, there may be times in the Christian's life when the most appropriate response to one who works evil is to give him free reign to allow the evil to flourish if it should further the cause of Christ. Jesus follows on from that teaching. It's not disconnected. He says, and more than that, you need to be active in your response. It's not simply that you allow the outworking of evil, though that may be true, but also you respond in love. This is the correction that Jesus offers. Specifically, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, I don't think the two phrases there are entirely synonymous. He's not saying the same thing twice in two different ways. To love your enemies casts a very broad net. It's a far-reaching command that could be worked out in many different ways. And then Jesus says, by way of example, one specific means of loving your enemy would be to pray for them. It barely needs to be said. The prayers that Jesus has in mind here are not imprecatory prayers. They're prayers of love, affection, seeking the very face of God on behalf of your enemy. Seeking that he, God, would bless your enemy. And incidentally, if you have ever prayed for one who seeks to work evil into your life, you'll be very surprised how quickly your heart is softened towards them. If you have ever prayed for those who seek to do harm to you, your heart is softened and soon you may be finding affection towards them. There is, in that sense, a a reciprocal logic here. Love them, pray for them. As you pray for them, you will love them. As you love them, then pray for them. And it goes on and on. Jesus pictures yet more what his disciples will look like, bringing it all together. At the beginning of the sermon, he said, Rejoice when you are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Rejoice and be glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That is the first teaching Jesus gives as it relates to persecution. He then goes on and adds another piece to the puzzle. By the way, when they come, don't resist. Seek wisdom from above and don't resist knowing that it may be the very best thing for the advancement of the gospel in your own heart and through you. And then he adds this week, you need to be very, very active. As they come and they work evil in your life, you respond how? By loving them, 
and by praying for them. So with this theology of discipleship, now just consider. Again, in light of last week's text, someone slaps you in the marketplace. You're a disciple of Jesus in first century Israel. Someone knows that you follow this man. They don't like you for it. They slap you in the marketplace. You have just been shamed before the crowds. And every intent of the flesh is to slap them back, if not do far worse. But Jesus says, turn the other cheek, allow the outworking of evil. More than that, when you get home that night, you get on your knees, and you pray for them. That night, when your pride has been hurt, you've been humiliated, You drop on your knees and you make them the object of your prayers, praying, God, would you richly bless him? Would you so shower blessings on him that he knows your goodness? And it may even be that the next day you go back and you think through an active, intentional response, an act of love. You buy him a loaf of bread. You gift it to him. Or suppose you're in court. Someone is pursuing you now in the court. They want to take your tunic. Jesus says, give him your cloak also. Don't resist the outworking of evil in your life. Give to him your cloak. Oh, and by the way, pray for him. And love him. Is there a way in which you might show to him a heart of abounding affection? of good intentions towards him. Act upon it. Be active in your response to his evil intent. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. We spoke about the New Testament, real historical example. Simon of Cyrene, the Roman centurions, grabbed him and said, you are going to carry this cross with Jesus. Go. It's really interesting when you read Simon of Cyrene in Mark's gospel. Mark mentions there that he's the father of a man named Rufus. And as scholars have sought to understand why Mark would include that small detail, what we see is that later on, as Paul writes to the Romans, in his closing salutations, he mentions a young man named Rufus quite possibly the son of Simon. And so it would seem Rufus is a follower of Christ, and plausibly so also Simon, whether prior to him going along the way with Jesus to his crucifixion or after. And if that is indeed the case, you can only imagine the bitterness in Simon's heart as he reflects in the days, weeks, months, years after the bitterness in his heart towards the Romans that forced Simon to play a part in the crucifixion of his Lord. Carry this man's cross. Help us in killing him. And Simon is weighed down with that burden and the temptation is to harbor bitterness in his heart 
And the very moment those feelings arrive, surely the words of his Lord come to mind, love your enemies. And so Simon, a faithful follower of Christ, can do nothing but to love the very men that forced him to carry the cross. This is the Christian ethic. It's the cornerstone of the Christian faith. You set your gaze upon Christ and trusted him for salvation. You take him to be who he said he was. You know that he is the only means by which your sins might be forgiven and you could be accepted before a holy God. And then you submit to his commands. One goes with the other. You trust Christ for salvation. You gladly by grace receive all the benefits that he has to give. And you obey his commands. Not least the command that we are a people marked by, defined by our readiness to love. The only reason this person in this text is an enemy is because they have rendered themselves as such. You have not made them an enemy. Because in your heart you are choosing to love them. Again and again the apostles picked up on this teaching. Romans 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Peter 3, they all come back to this cornerstone teaching of Christ. Love your enemies. Over the last few weeks as we've been in this section, in the Sermon on the Mount, we have prayed together as a church that God would be leading us in paths of greater righteousness. We study a fresh, perhaps very familiar texts. Our prayer that we have prayed together week after week is that God would be doing a work amongst us in this church to lead us in paths of yet greater righteousness. We want to be a people who obey the word of God. And last week I said, if you are a Christian and you don't hide that reality and those around you know it, most likely you have an opportunity to turn the other cheek. If you don't have it now, it will soon come. In the same vein, if you're a Christian, you don't hide that reality, those around you know it, you have an opportunity most likely to love your enemy. What's the content of your prayer life? What do your prayers sound like? What desires guide your prayers? Is it only that God would shine his face upon you? Or do you bring before the throne of grace those that hate you? Those that seek to work evil in your life, praying on their behalf that God would be good to them? Do you act upon that? Do they know that you love them? Does your enemy know that you love them? That's how you show yourself to be a Christian. And that's exactly where Jesus goes. Having considered the distortion and the correction that Jesus gives, he then explains the theology underpinning this command. 
he does, in a sense, give an impetus, an incentive. How do I obey? I want to acknowledge that there is a real fight in your heart when confronted with one seeking to do you harm. Undoubtedly, there is a real struggle in your heart because the flesh remains. The flesh is strong. We're not perfect. We are not fully sanctified. And so there is a battle in your heart in that moment, in that instance. How do I right now resist the temptation to be bitter, to respond in likeness, to hate them in return? How do I resist that, silence that, How do I give way to the imperative, get myself under and obey the command that Jesus gives to love your enemies? The answer, broadly speaking, I sum up as simply that we need to grasp hold of the glorious vision of what it means to be a disciple. How do you love your enemies? Answer, you grasp hold of the glorious vision of what it means to be a disciple. Jesus explains, he gives a theological ground, a foundation from which this kind of enemy-loving affections arises. And then he reaches forward to the goal. Both of them come under the theological rubric of discipleship. This is what it means to follow Christ. First of all, the grounds, the foundation, he says, verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Because he makes the sunrise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. To be clear, Jesus here is not teaching that in our act of love, we then gain our sonship. It's not a works-based salvation. By loving someone, you prove yourself and come into the kingdom. That's not what he's teaching. It's there even in the verse, so that you may be sons of your father. He is already your father. You are a son. This is not to earn your salvation. It has been gifted to you. And then I would argue the broader context of the sermon is one where that is already inferred. Jesus begins. Before his teaching, he goes to that shore in Galilee and he says, follow me. He gifts to them eyes of faith and they respond. So he's not teaching that. What he is saying is that you need to realize, actualize, put into effect the reality of your sonship. Or, to put it a different way, he is teaching his disciples that to be a disciple is synonymous with being a son. Make that connection, these wonderful, glorious doctrines that we see all throughout the New Testament, to be a disciple of Christ is to be a son of the Father in heaven. The two should not be separate in your mind, but you are to bring together those two realities. I follow Jesus And that is because I am a son. And when you grasp hold of that glorious vision of what it means to be a disciple, not least in the doctrine of adoption, you can't but love your enemy. Because what it does is it prompts you to consider how exactly your sonship 
came about. I am a son of God this morning. Why? Because God looked on his enemy, me, and he sent his son to die in my place. I am a son of a loving heavenly father this morning, even though I was his enemy. He bestowed his love upon me and caused me to respond in faith and repentance. I am a son because I have received this very love of which Jesus commands. And he even teaches us, you can see this at work every day around you. The love of God is being poured out day after day, sometimes savingly, bringing one to saving faith in Christ, other times simply to make the rain fall on the unjust. The love of God is being poured out on a rebellious society day after day. Look and observe at the love of God and allow that to be an impetus for you to love your enemies. Refresh your mind to the truth of who you are as a son or daughter of God. And that is the grounds by which you then obey this command. I've said it before, if you struggle to love others, it is most likely because you have not thought much about God's love for you. If you don't do a good job at loving your enemies. If you recognize, as you look around you, the only ones that I show my affections to, my love towards, are those that do kind to me. It might be because you have not pondered the love of your Father who is in heaven. That's part of the vision of being a disciple. And then Jesus stretches forward to show us the goal still teaching his disciples what it means to be a follower of him. Verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? You see how there Jesus shifted from the foundation of being a son of God to the end, your reward, most likely here speaking about your final reward in heaven. If you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You see the irony with which Jesus was teaching, pushing back against the Pharisees who considered themselves to be more righteous than anyone else. He says, if you practice their love, you don't have a righteousness greater than the tax collectors or the Gentiles. The irony, the subtle pushback that Jesus demonstrates to the Pharisees is that though they thought themselves to be righteous, they are no better than the tax collectors or the Gentiles because their love was so limited. As Jesus teaches this, he stretches forward to the reward that is in heaven for every child of God. What does that reward look like? Jonathan Edwards wrote a short essay entitled, as many of you know, Heaven is a World of Love. The reward looks like a fuller, 
reception, knowledge, understanding of the love of God than you have ever understood in this earthly life. God has given you His love fully. He has not held back His love. One day you will step into glory and you will see more fully the love that He gives you. And as you love your enemies in this earthly life, you are storing up for yourself a rich treasure that is in heaven. One of the earliest examples that we have of obedience to this command comes most likely from the first century. A manuscript discovered in the catacombs in Rome the story, you may be familiar with it, of Proculus and Paulus. The text reads, a rich man named Proculus had hundreds of slaves. The slave named Paulus was so trustworthy that Proculus made him the steward over his whole household. One day Proculus took Paulus with him to the slave market to buy some new workers. Before the bargaining began, they examined the men to see if they were strong and healthy. Among the slaves stood a weak old man. Paulus urged his owner to buy this slave. Proculus answered, but he is good for nothing. Go ahead, buy him, Paulus insisted. Is cheap. And I promise that the work in your household will get done even better than before. So Proculus agreed and purchased the elderly slave, and Paulus made good on his word. The work went better than ever. But Proculus observed that Paulus now worked for two men. The old slave did no work at all. While Paulus tended to him, gave him the best food, and made him rest. Proculus was curious. So he confronted Paulus, who is this slave? You know I value you, I don't mind your protecting this old man, but tell me who he is. Is he your father, who has fallen into slavery? Paulus Paulus answered, it is someone to whom I owe more than to my father. Your teacher then? No, somebody to whom I owe even more. Who then? This is my enemy. Your enemy? Yes. He is the man who killed my father. And he sold us, the children, as slaves. Proculus stood speechless. As for me, said Paulus, I am a disciple of Christ, who has taught us to love our enemies and to reward evil with good. I pray God would lead our church and greater paths of righteousness. That we would be known 
as those who love our enemies and pray for them. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, we are thankful for Christ's teaching. When we wrestle with it, we with the crowds are amazed by it. To think that we would be commanded to love not only those who do good to us, but to pursue in love our enemies. Cause us to trust you. Where our trust is lacking, cause us to trust you. And so to embrace this command. Where there is anyone in our church who is feeling the outworking of evil in their life right now, give them grace to obey this command. Father, we are sober about the reality of being disciples on this earth. You have promised persecution. Even if now is a time of peace for us, prepare our hearts to love our enemies. To love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. In so doing, treading out the path of a child of God and storing up for ourselves a reward in heaven. We commit ourselves to you this morning in Christ's name. Amen.